Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have member of Knesset, Michal Kopler-Punch, appointed as Knesset's representative on issues related to international criminal court. Join us to discuss, is the ICC prosecuting or persecuting Israel and does it matter? Ms. Kotler-Wunsch will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for a question. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to MK Michal Kotler-Wunsch. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you. I can't actually see anybody, so I hope you can see me and hear me. Uh, I'd love an indication that that is the case. Yes, that is the case. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Um, how are you? Okay. Terrific. So um, thank you very much. Um, I, I really wanted to start with, first of all, with the title um, and, you know, everything is in the title. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that it's very important, or at least from my perspective, that we engage with this topic from the perspective of, is it important at all? Um, to address the issue of um, the International Criminal Court, specifically with regard to Israel, specifically with regards to the decision that we are awaiting, um, that the ICC um, is meant to be rendering with regards to the um, possibility or probability of prosecuting Israel or persecuting Israel. We can take it either which way the title um, addresses both. Um, for those that are familiar um, with the topic, you know um, that um, you know we're awaiting this decision that the prosecutor will decide if indeed um, she can prosecute the state of Israel. And I would like to address this um, as an opportunity, as an opportunity that I think both in the international arena, um, we have a role to play and internally. Um, within the state of Israel. So maybe I'll begin within, um, with, you know, in the international front and with the international arena and, um, and address the issue of the decision which we are awaiting and maybe we would be better off to have this discussion after, it, um, after it's actually rendered. But in anticipation of that decision, there are a few things that I think we should keep in mind regardless. Um, first of all, as most or some of you may know, um, the state of Israel is not party to um, the Rome statute. Um, so the question of whether the Palestinians can legitimate, legitimately call for an investigation and where their jurisdiction lies, um, you know, awaits um, the decision and the prosecutor's explanation um, for both actually issues. You know, how do we um, address those? Um, a decision to investigate the state of Israel, assuming that the prosecutor does decide that that's indeed um, within the mandate of the ICC, um, would undermine legal experts and opinions and amici briefs, by the way, um, to the court by numerous Western countries. I think that that is another issue that must be addressed, raised with the international community and addressed um, as we engage in the conversation going forward. It's also a precedent as far as a legal, legal precedent is concerned. I think that that should concern not only the state of Israel, if the decision rendered would be indeed to prosecute, but also um, should concern all of the countries involved that you know, uh, presented their positions um, and, um, and presented these legal opinions and they would essentially be undermined. Of course, there's the issue of complementarity. Once again, this relates to the state of Israel for sure as 
you know, is um, uh, internationally accepted. There is an excellent rule of law and system of law in the state of Israel. The courts, um, indeed, and the concept of complementarity leans on the internal um, court system and the rule of law that exists in Israel, as it does in other countries. This wouldn't only affect the state of Israel, and I would argue all countries um, relying on complementarity should be concerned were the prosecutor to decide that despite complementarity, despite the existence of a functioning legal system, um, a well-renowned legal system, uh, the prosecutor would you know, um, uh, uh, overlook or undermine the principle of complementarity as well. Um, with regards to um, the international community, once again, um, I would say that the decision um, to prosecute the state of Israel also needs to be addressed from the perspective of the ICC's actual role. If we go back to the mission, vision, and values of the ICC and the scarce resources that it has, um, the decision to persecute or prosecute the state of Israel um, in this context is actually instead of fulfilling its mandate, fulfilling the vision, mission, and values, using or allocating limited resources to this investigation. And by the way, it's already taken up much of the court's um, resources. And, you know, uh, I guess, you know, we, we, I would say instead of um, investigating what it should be investigating with regards to what's happening in the rest of the world, whether it be the Uyghurs in China, whether it be um, uh, cases of the, you know, the people in Venezuela, um, whether it's women in Iran um, that are being ignored by the very same court, uh, mandated by the very same international community to investigate those crimes against humanity. Uh, so again, I think that these are all cases for the international community to be concerned by, not just the state of Israel. Um, and certainly um, in terms of the founding principles of this court and, uh, and I would say the power and the pity, the power in terms of what it was meant to do and the pity in terms of what it is doing and would be doing were it to decide to prosecute the state of Israel. Um, then maybe I'll turn internally and perhaps um, my role as, you know, appointed officially by the Knesset um, to the topic of the ICC, not to be a representative to the ICC, that isn't the purpose at all. It's both to engage with my peers in an interparliamentary way, officially and unofficially, with regards to everything that I began with, um, the prospective decision and whatever it will be, the grave concern that the international community should have, and maybe even the imperative, or not maybe, the imperative and the possibility to reform the ICC so that it can fulfill its original mandate, vision, mission, values that I refer to, um, but also internally. And I think internally when I say I mean within Knesset and within the state of Israel, um, within decision-making you know, committees that are relevant to this topic. And I'd say the ICC is really just um, a microcosm of the argument that I have been making in all kinds of other contexts for several years with regards to the imperative for the state of Israel to rise from the docket of the accused. And to do that um, by affirming the language of rights and um, uh, utilizing the very same tools that are available in international law and um, 
our, I'd say both our friends, our allies and our foes utilize regularly, whereas the state of Israel has actually been in absentia. So when I say to speak the language of rights, I do not mean English. I'm referring, of course, to the lingua franca that the rest of the world, free world at least, actually not only free world, utilizes. And many um, have chosen to utilize this language of rights, um, I would say cynically, to undermine the very same rights that were meant to be upheld, promoted, and protected. Uh, internally within Israel, um, I don't think that around the decision-making tables, there's enough of an understanding. And actually my role in the capacity that I'm very grateful that um, acknowledges um, the importance of having a voice within Knesset to make representations internally to my peers within Knesset, so that when we sit around um, the decision-making tables, we are aware of Israel's challenges in the international arena. As I say, this is just, I would, I think just one symptom of the many challenges that Israel faces, but quite a big one. Um, and a strategic challenge to the state of Israel in terms of um, the battle for public opinion, which was waged. And I, you know, I yesterday actually at a committee hearing referred to, you know, Durban of 2001, where really the first implementation of the strategy launched in Durban um, maybe was with the movie Janine Janine in the aftermath of the um, uh, um, uh, uh, allegations made against Israeli soldiers by the movie um, Janine Janine. But I think we see many symptoms um, or many other, I would say, implementations of the very same uh, um, strategy to utilize the language of rights, to utilize international law in a way that actually undermines them. Uh, I think that the Goldstone report was such a case. And I think that this, the ICC, what we see now is just a continuation of the very same battle launched or the sa very same, let's call it lawfare for lack of a better word, um, as opposed to a different kind of war um, waged against the state of Israel. And in, in, in many ways, um, we've been in absentia for many reasons. And actually, I don't, I don't think that it matters why the state of Israel has been in absentia and has been sorely lacking from the arena. And in that sense, is it's a losing battle and we have to enter the arena and fight it. And so I think that this provides an opportunity, uh, call me an optimist, but alongside um, this decision, whatever it'll be at the ICC, I think it is an opportunity and also a responsibility to understand internally, as I said, in the Knesset and internally in the state of Israel and to engage with the international um, uh, other parliaments or our peers around the world and the international community, all the organizations and, and, and the countries that are trustees of human rights that are the ones meant to uphold, protect and maintain uh, international law, human rights um, that speak for those or that draw their mandate from those principles of international law. I think once again, that the opportunity that we um, are gonna be presented with, we already are presented with it, by the way, regardless of the outcome, I wouldn't wait even if the outcome were not to prosecute the state of Israel. I believe that it's imperative we engage in challenging these paradigms, in challenging the international community um, to expose the double standards that have enabled this to go on for this long and to create this um, semblance of uh, upholding and maintaining international law while really undermining its principles at the very same time. 
Um, so I look forward to hearing your questions. And um, again, the opportunity to engage with you this evening internally within the state of Israel and within the Knesset and in the international arena is one that I think uh, is not only imperative, but is part of my mission in Knesset, um, having entered recently. So thank you for the opportunity to discuss it. Wonderful, thank you so much. So the first question is, can you just give us a little background on what the supposed Israeli crimes in question are? Well, uh, the, the crimes in question are actually Israel's um, soldiers, or which would actually a very broad uh, number of soldiers or a, an extensive, I would say, number of soldiers from the very high ranking officers to the you know, lowest ranking soldier that executed commands. It is an, ar an army after all, and is a hierarchy for um, uh, violations of international law for, you know, grave crimes against humanity committed very specifically. And by the way, the mandate to uh, examine beginning on a very certain date, um, uh, actually right around Operation Protective Edge um, gives me an opportunity to also address this from another perspective and, and or another principle, foundational principle of international law. That is the principle of reciprocity because in the same war or operation, Operation Protective Edge actually Two Israeli soldiers are still held, along with two Israeli civilians, Hadar Golden and Aron Shaul, two deceased soldiers. Two Israeli civilians, Avera Mengistu and Hisham Asayid, are still held in standing violation of international law that actually occurred at the very same time, or just before, the mandated period of reviewing Israel's alleged crimes against, against humanity and um, breaches of international law, violations of international law. And I think it's fundamentally um, um, uh, exposes the double standard and imperative that we understand and address that. In fact, the very same court that's meant or will may decide to prosecute the state of Israel has not even alluded or investigated for one moment this standing violation. And when I say a standing violation, and not everybody, um, I don't know if everybody's familiar with it, but Hadar Golden um, was actually abducted and killed one hour after uh, the entry of an internationally brokered humanitarian ceasefire. And every day that has passed since, we are in standing violation of that internationally brokered, by the way, supported by the EU, and brokered by the UN and the United States, one hour after it was um, uh, uh, entered, one hour later it was violated and we are in a standing violation. And when I say we, I again speak to the international community. I speak to the trustees of human rights. I speak to the ICC. I speak to the very systems that are meant to uphold, protect and maintain international law and human rights. And so again, another foundational principle, that of reciprocity would be severely undermined if we were not to speak in the same uh, sentence or in the same breath of alleged crimes against humanity or violations of international law or criminal charges cast against Israeli soldiers from the very same operation. Thank you. If the decision goes against Israel, how vigorously supportive do you think the Western and even EU countries will be in accepting the decision or trying to invalidate it? So, I mean, I, I'd sort of be foolish to answer that question because I'm not a prophet, but um, I'd say this. I'd say that I would call on my colleagues in parliaments around the world 
to stand firmly against such a decision for all of the reasons that I mentioned um, in my first statements regarding the international community. I don't believe this is about Israel solely. I don't believe this is Israel's issue at all. I believe that Israel is the canary in the mine shaft. And I believe that there is an opportunity and an imperative for European countries and beyond to engage with this question while exposing double standards. Now, that demands a lot of us because the opportunity for the reform of the ICC, assuming that we understand that the ICC's original role, original mandate, original mission, vision, and values on the ashes of the Holocaust was an important understanding and that these principles, complementarity and reciprocity, these principles are fundamental to being able to engage in a world where you need some sort of understanding or uniform understanding or at least acceptable rules um, to play by. If we enable them to be applied with double standards or inconsistently against one country, one people, one religion, then all people, all countries, all religions should be paying attention. And that is where I think our engagement will, be, will become very important. It's where I'm grateful for the opportunity to at the very least try to reach out to our peers and to inform my own peers within Knesset of the importance of engaging because we have many formal and informal possibilities. We have interparliamentary sort of the parliaments of the parliaments, whether it's the European parliament um, or, or friendship circles that are a little less for formal um, that we each um, head. I'm the Canada Israel, you know, friendship chair and so forth. We not only have that possibility, but we have that responsibility to engage with our peers around the world in order to explain in this way the challenge to the entire international community, not just to the state of Israel. And so I would hope that we would be able to make a difference in that way as well. Thank you. We have a Canada specific question coming in. Uh, how do you expect Canada to respond or even care, especially now that Trudeau is trying to curry favor for a seat on the Security Council? So I think that's a little bit behind us. I think Canada didn't receive a seat on the Security Council. Um, I don't know if that'll change anything, but um, I would say that Canada itself actually submitted um, an, an informal um, amicus brief. And the amicus briefs that were submitted, as I said, if they were to be ignored by the ICC, should concern all countries. I would hope it concerns Canada even more. I think that Canada, if we speak about the power and the pity, Canada has the possibility to really shine in terms of both human rights, but not just uh, you know, the beacon of human rights, but the consistent application of, of, of human rights. Um, in, in, its own, in its own way, Canada has a role to play here that I would hope would be um, one that it would choose to. But regardless of, as I said, the state of Israel, if Canada's opinion were to be overlooked, if Canada's opinion were to be ignored, I think Canada would merit Canada understanding that like as, as any other country, as Germany, as all the countries that submitted their own positions with regard to the Palestinian legitimacy um, um, uh, in terms of it being a country or a state. Again, consistency is crucial if we are to, as trustees of human rights, if we are to be able to actually apply these rules consistently. And once we, we have the rules, we have the foundational principles, as we mentioned, complementarity, reciprocity, if they are not upheld, promoted and protected by those very trustees of human rights, they're undermined for all of us, not just for the state of Israel. 
So earlier you were discussing that uh, Israel isn't isn't party to the Rome Statute, and therefore bringing in the question of legitimacy of this. Uh, can you discuss that a little further? Well, look. Um, and that's where we're in a bit of a, you know, it was important to me to say I'm not the representative to the ICC. Israel doesn't have official representative representation to the ICC. Israel is not a state party to the Rome Statute. Um, that has implications for the ICC itself, uh, if and for international law generally. If countries don't um, uh, impose or don't join a statute, but nonetheless um, can be. Um, um, uh, considered as members for whatever reason in this case in order to be prosecuted, then that has all kinds of other ramifications. Uh, in this case, I, I would, you know, I, I would say this, I would say once again, and, and I guess I'm a little bit consistent in this, the overlooking of foundational principles of international law, um, creating a double standard or singling out one country we can call it persecuting, but singling out one country as opposed to all others has ramifications for the entire infrastructure, for the entire system. And so if this is just the canary in the mine shaft, once again, then that is the rule with regards to the Rome Statute as well, um, in terms of the legality or the illegality of making that decision and the ICC's um, rent decision as it will be rendered um, will have great implications and as far as I'm concerned, um, uh, ramifications for the entire structure of international law, not just for the state of Israel. So speaking of the representatives, can you give us a brief background of who has the most power within the ICC um, countries? I know of the, like, basically who is the body that makes these international laws and who has the representatives within the ICC? Well, you know, that's, yeah, that's uh, first of all, that's not, uh, in, 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 from my perspective, that's far less interesting because I don't know the ICC politics. In fact, it shouldn't be political. It's a court of law. Uh, I think that herein lies the problem. Um, e even the fact that you would ask that question, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. I should say this. It shouldn't matter. And I say this as a lawyer. Um, if it is authentically a court of law, then that question shouldn't even exist. And so... I'm gonna completely um, defer to anybody who has an opinion on that because that would just be engaging with something that's illegitimate as far as I'm concerned. A court of law is based on legal principles. In this case, on the foundational principles of international law and human rights. In this case, there should be an appointment system and we can discuss the appointment system to the ICC and whether it's a professional appointment system and so forth, but that's not you know, the discussion that we're having this evening. Um, and uh, the reform of the ICC, maybe that I will say, the reform of the ICC is instrumental to being able to uphold, protect and maintain both international law and human rights. And that is in the interest of all state parties to the Rome Statute and beyond. That is in, in the interest of the entire international community and of all countries and organizations that hold themselves as trustees to that international law and human rights. Can you discuss that a little further? What reforms do you think should be implicated? So I think that, that the reforms that should be um, um, uh, engaged in or addressed must be addressed by the international community, by the state parties to the ICC, to the Rome Statute, and, and that are, that are um, um, state members. Uh, and, I, and in that sense, I think that 
holding to account and taking responsibility as we aren't members, um, I would be overstepping my bounds in making those recommendations. I'm sure that the state of Israel, and it can be um, um, a member of some sort of a suggested reform, if that would be the track taken by the international community. But I, 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 at this you know, moment in time, I don't believe that you know, I have any suggestions that I would make as to the reforms. Um, it, uh, other than what I keep repeating over and over, the foundational principles of international law, the original vision, mission, and values of the ICC have to be upheld. They have to be the guiding or the infrastructure that holds this, um, that holds this organization both to account by its members and that it holds itself to account to. So you can't undermine the system by um, you know, disregarding reciprocity, by overlooking complementarity, by not caring if a member is a state party or not, by ignoring um, amici briefs from countries that make legal representations and then claim to have jurisdiction. It just isn't legally sound, but it also it doesn't make sense. And so the reform would have to begin back with where the ICC was, you know, was, 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 was launched. It would have to begin with the original mission, vision, and values. And those exist and their need or the need for them is more urgent than ever. I mean, in a world where the ICC was meant to ensure that never again, we see a reality of again and again. I mentioned only some of them. I mentioned Iran and China and Venezuela. But in a world that is again and again, and we look at the, the, the populations and the peoples that have no voice, that have no legal infrastructure to turn to for the protection of their rights, then we understand that that reform is more important than ever. Wonderful, thank you so much. And we wish you the best of luck in, in radicalizing the changes there. Uh, we've unfortunately come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Michal, for speaking with us today. For our viewers, Thanks. please join us 3 p.m. Eastern for our weekly update with Ashley Perry. And thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank have you. Have a good evening. <laughs>